This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. You were taking a look at the price tag here on the Trans Mountain Pipeline going up 70%, $12.6 billion. Remember, you own this thing now. The uh, This was a project was bought on behalf of Canadian taxpayers by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. $12.6 billion bucks it's going to cost now. The completion de- date also delayed to 2022. Keep your rubber duckies handy. You're going to take a bath on this thing. Now, here's the question today. Do you still approve of the government owning this thing? Would you say... Yes, we got to build this thing. It's going to be good for the economy and a lot of jobs, and we can sell it to the private sector later. Or would you say, no, what a waste of money. You could buy six new St. Paul's hospitals for that, or you could you could pay 26,000 teachers for 10 years with that kind of money. At CKNW on Twitter is where you can vote on this one today. At CKNW on Twitter. Give me a follow while you're there at Mike Smith News on Twitter, SM. YTH at Mike Smith News on Twitter. Call me on the buzz line in this one. Leave me a voicemail, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. And send me an email to mike at cknw.com. All right, welcome back to the show. Mike Smith in for Simi. The breaking news at this hour, Uber is victorious in court, going up against Doug McCallum and his $500 tickets. Let's check in with Global BC reporter Jill Bennett covering the story. Hiya, Jill. Hey, Mike. Okay, what went down in court? So this was uh, the decision yesterday. Uh, same judge that heard both cases yesterday. It was uh, the injunction that the Vancouver Taxi Association was looking for. Uh, they were not victorious, as you know. And today, this was the injunction Uber was looking for, seeking uh, Surrey bylaw officers to stop ticketing. They were uh, victorious, as you just mentioned. So the judge ruled that uh, she went through a list basically looking at three things, uh, looking at whether or not Uber would suffer financial harm if this practice of ticketing continued, and she ruled that yes, there was enough evidence put forward to prove that they would. Uh, also saying that uh, Uber's reputation could hurt. They Uber Part of their evidence was that if they were stopped now, they would lose any competitive edge they had by being the first rideshare available in Surrey, and that would harm the company. She agreed with that as well, and said when she looked at this in the public interest and the whole reason that the transportation, the passenger transportation board approved the company, approved Uber to operate, it was because they deemed it was in the public interest and to stop it now would go against the public interest. So because of that, she ruled that bylaw officers in Surrey must stop issuing those tickets and they must stop doing it immediately. Okay, what about the Uber drivers who already got a ticket? Do they got to pay them pay the money and pay the fine? <laughs> So we just talked with Michael Van Hemmen, who is the head of Western Canada Uber. I asked him that. So he said anecdotally he's heard that about two dozen drivers have been handed those tickets so far. He said he doesn't have confirmation of this, but he wants those tickets cancelled. He said he doesn't know of anybody that's actually paid it so far. He said Uber has not paid the tickets that they have been issued. And he would think that because of this ruling, he expects that those tickets will be cancelled and the drivers that have been ticketed will not have to pay. Jill, busy morning for you. Thanks for taking the time. All right, no problem. Anytime. All right, that's Global News reporter Jill Bennett following the story as Uber wins in court going up against Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. Very pleased to welcome Keith Baldry into the studio now. Keith, thanks a lot for coming in. 
Um, I kind of thought that Uber was going to win this. Yeah. I mean, it just it looked just looked like they had the hammer this time, and I'm not surprised they won. No surprise at all. Surrey went well. Doug McCallum went a little rogue here on uh, trying to go after Uber in a very sort of one-off fashion. Nobody else was really backing him on this, so no surprise that Uber prevails. And particularly, it was the same judges yesterday. I mean, she's she displayed no tolerance for this type. And of then thing. Uh, McCallum put out a very brief statement this morning, basically just two sentences long, and one of them was. It's time to move on. So I was thinking, like, this guy's, like, tapping out in, like, yeah. a UFC cage match. This was, like, a mismatch. Doug, you lost, okay? Yeah. So it's time to move walk, on. Walk away. I think he's yeah, going to go back away. to talk about uh, a Surrey police force. That's going to be his, his subject. Okay. Uh, that's his fallback. Okay. Uh, let's talk about some of the other stuff going on, because mm-hmm. there's so much going on. Let's start with... Um, Let's start with uh, uh, no-fault insurance yesterday right. from, from the B.C. government. You had a real jump on this yesterday. You sort of knew this was coming. Still kind of a surprise, though, because the, the NDP had been consistently opposed to this thing. So it is a flip-flop, right? It is a flip-flop, yeah. but uh, it's interesting. I thought our colleague Rob Shaw had a pretty good piece in the uh, Vancouver Sun Today interview yes. with David Eby, charting his his, uh, his, conversion. his conversion on the road yeah. to Damascus here. I think what really drove this, uh, and it's, it's obvious, is... Uh, the ongoing fiscal dumpster fire at ICBC, he was running into some serious problems there. He lost his critical court case to limit uh, expert testimony in these in these uh, claim trials. Uh, and it was clear, and he's been signaling this for some time uh, to the trial lawyers, trial lawyers, you know, you, you keep suing me for trying to change the system. Careful what you wish for here, yes, guys. That was the, that was the warning. Th- that was the warning he yeah. gave. And uh, that was the tip off. This was coming. And, and the trial lawyers are upset, but I think, uh, there's a lot of blame to go around. And I think they have to share a lot of it. Okay. The trial lawyers are mad as hell because this is their bread and butter. This is mm-hmm. how they make their money. This is why you see the saturation advertising. If you get in an accident, call a lawyer first before you call, talk to ICB. So, of course, they're mad as hell. But I think that there's a chance the NDP can can win this fight uh, if they can convince the public this is the way to go. And I think a critical point is that the disability community, people who represent people hurting accidents, are kind of going along with it, saying we kind of like what we see here. Well, well, unlike in 1997, when this was first attempted by the former NDP government, there's much more clarity in terms of accident payouts, in terms of um, the money that's going to be available. And that wasn't clear in 97. And so so, uh, the trial lawyers teamed up with the disability community in 97 to sort of defeat no fault, saying it was going to ruin people's lives. That's a tough argument to make this time. So there's two things yeah. I think are going to happen. One, if you see a, a, a real reduction in your rates, yeah. that's an obvious crowd pleaser. The other thing, though, ICBC is going to have to uh, step up to the plate here yeah. and change their performance because anecdotally, you hear a lot of stories of people who don't think they've been treated fairly by ICBC. ICBC has been under financial pressure for a few years now, and uh, I've been told, you know, claims adjusters and people who negotiate payouts have been under pressure. Don't spend too much money. We haven't got any money to spend. So uh, the culture has to change at ICBC to make it a much more public-friendly corporation. But, you know, I think that can be done with this uh, new system. I think a crucial thing for convincing the public that this is a good thing is that you're going to have to deliver on the promises. And it reminds me of the scene from the movies. Greg, you got that clip from the movies? Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Show you the money. That doc show you. Show me the money. Show me the money. Yes! Louder! Show me the money. I need to feel you, Jerry. Show me the money! Jerry, you better yell! Show me the money! <laughs> okay. My all, point is... Right moves. My point is, show me the money. No, it's Jerry Maguire. Oh, Jerry Maguire, right. Jerry Maguire. Show me the money, okay? So, like, you got uh, Premier John Horgan saying, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to cut your auto insurance by 20% next year. 
Yeah. Now, I'll believe that when I see it. Show me the money. Can I'll, they deliver on this? I'll believe it when I see it, too. But uh, if they can suck this amount of money out of the system so quickly through uh, through getting rid of the lawyers, then it can be done. But the other thing that was let drop yesterday by Nicholas Jimenez, the CEO of, of uh, ICBC, there are still 90,000 claims in the system that have to be dealt with. It's going to take five to seven years to, to deal with those backlog. to clear the backlog, and those Presum- will be under the old rules. Yeah, so right? I, it's, yeah. Uh, presumably that's going to that's going to cost a, a fair amount of money. So I'm not sure the savings are going to be realized this that quickly. Part- I think there's still a lot of skepticism uh, uh, that has to be there when you look at ICBC's finances. Uh, in the budget last year, they said we're going to carve a billion dollars off the bottom line. Yeah, we're going to find out on budget day whether that's actually true. But I don't think uh, the signs are pointing. Well, to that. this is where I'm wondering if this is real or not. And you know, EB kind of portraying himself as some kind of miracle worker here that they can he can deliver this massive cut in your auto insurance and like i said i believe it when i see it now if they can deliver that next year and people start opening up their icbc renewal notices and going oh my god i got a 20 percent cut in my auto insurance i got to be awesome for the government especially with the liberals going against it sets up a really critical wedge issue against the liberals going into another election. If but can it, they really do it? That's if what it happens, and yeah. it cannot happen that quickly. Keep in mind, not everybody, uh, we don't all renew our insurance on the same day. Uh, right. For instance, my, I renew my insurance at the end of October, which is going to be after the next provincial election. So there's a lot of people who renew their insurance after the votes are tallied. So it may be an election issue. Uh, I think the liberals are going to have trouble really uh, finding a way to, to stick with Liberals this are thing. against it. It basically came out against it yesterday, They right? did, uh, but are they going to be against no-fault, or are they going to be against ICBC? I think ICBC is a better target than this no-fault system, because the no-fault system won't but, be in place for uh, May 2021, so there's a lot of time between now and then, and the Liberals have to find a way to come at this. I think they come at it by by, by David Eby's own admission. ICBC's brand right now has got a lot of trouble associated with it, and I think the Liberals can exploit that. Right, so I talked to Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson on the show yesterday, mm-hmm. and he—that's the card he played. He said, "Do you really trust yeah. ICBC? I don't trust them. You should not trust John Horgan. You should not trust ICBC. Yeah. That's probably the strongest not card a, he can play. Not a bad card to but play. But the thing is, though, we got a, a legislative session coming up starting next week. This mm-hmm. Tuesday is the throne speech. I bet you this thing will be front and center in the throne speech. And then the government's going to have to introduce legislation to make this happen. So the Liberals are going to have to be forced to vote on this. Yep. So do they vote for it or do they, do they vote against it?" If the government is saying this is going to result in a 20% cut in your auto insurance, the liberals really go against that? Well, because the, the cut won't take place for quite a while. I think they yeah. will vote against it. I think they're going to use the argument, too, that they're taking away your right to sue. You're, you're yeah. taking away your right to due process. Uh, that's not a bad argument to make in front of people. Now, uh, the counterargument to that is, well, suing means the lawyer takes one-third of your settlement, which yes. isn't... Uh, you and I were on here yesterday, Mike. What do we have? Six or seven callers in a row, which is very unusual for us, all expressing the same viewpoint. They all want the system to come in because they don't like dealing they with the like lawyers. They no fault. That's right. And a lot of the, those calls... That that jumped out at me too because a lot of the calls were prefaced by well i don't vote ndp and i'm no socialist but you know screw these lawyers and, and the government's got to love that i mean if that's the way public opinion kind of falls on this mm-hmm. thing it's good for the ndp well and the other you know talking to eb again yesterday they're pointing at saskatchewan and manitoba both have no fault insurance models yeah. both provinces have substantially lower insurance premiums than bc does uh in saskatchewan you can actually you have a choice you can you can go no fault or you can go the, you can choose the, the tort system, which is what we've got in BC. Well, and Wilkinson's saying that's what they should have done here. Not, well, uh, 99.5% of the drivers in Saskatchewan take the no-fault take option. No fault. So it's, uh, that, that, to me, that speaks volumes of where the public's at when it comes to no-fault. Let me ask you real quickly about something else, and we'll take a break and take some phone calls.
calls about a, a developing story at the BC legislature in Victoria, and that is uh, anti-pipeline protesters. So these are supporters of the Wet'suwet'en mm-hmm. uh, hereditary chiefs who oppose that coastal gas link pipeline in northern BC. There's a whole bunch of them camped out on yeah. the front steps of the legislature. The throne speech is on Tuesday. There's all kinds of pomp and ceremony where the lieutenant governor comes in uh, to the front steps mm-hmm. of the ledge or the 21-gun salute and all that stuff. Are the cops going to have to drag away all these people, these yeah. protesters from the front steps? It's going to be interesting. I'm just, I've just been talking to security here. They're wondering the same thing. Like, how long is this going to be allowed to continue? They camped overnight last night. They built a campfire. If you can. <laughs> it's an actual campfire. So the what's going on here is the building's under lockdown. Nobody's allowed in the building. The public uh, wow. is not. School tours can come in, but nobody else can come in. The front half of the building reeks of of uh, campfire smoke. Uh, wow. Offices in the up upstairs where the smoke is drifting have had to be. In some cases, people have gone home because they, they just can't work because of the smoke. Uh, they camp there overnight. Uh, if they're here till Tuesday, it becomes a real interesting situation because, as you say, that front steps—that's the ceremonial gate that the lieutenant governor comes through, by tradition, representing the crown and the queen. Right now, that's impassable because there's a huge uh, blockade oh, there. Oh man, it's potentially going to get very messy here. I think nothing's going to happen today. Nothing's going to happen on the week. Weekend, but uh, Monday, who who knows? Because okay. that campfire—they're uh, literally bringing logs. I've seen them carrying <laughs> logs and and wood uh, over to the front steps to keep this fire going. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for Simi. Let's talk about the coastal gas link pipeline now and the opposition to the project by hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. This is a big project, six point six billion dollars. It would pump natural gas from the Dawson Creek area to the LNG Canada export facility near Kitimat. That project, the one in Kitimat, is valued at around $40 billion. And this is the biggest private sector construction project, natural resource project ever in Canadian history. But it is controversial, opposed by the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. There's been a blockade in place up there in northern British Columbia. This week, we have seen the RCMP start to move in, enforcing a court order obtained by the company and clearing away protesters. We continue to follow that very closely. The David Suzuki Foundation now weighing in on this one, calling on the federal government and the B.C. government to halt the coastal gasoline pipeline until the dispute on Indigenous rights and titles uh, is resolved. Let's talk about that now with my guest, Jay Richland. He is the Director General for Western Canada of the David Suzuki Foundation. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you for having me. Good afternoon. Thank you for thank you for being here. Why do you think the project should be shut down? Well, I think legal tradition in Canada, not legal tradition, legal president in Canada, and the commitment to the United Nations Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People by both senior levels of government suggests very clearly that until they resolve the title questions of who are the appropriate people that hold the title, who are the appropriate people to consult, and how do you get real consent, they should just stop pushing these things through and most certainly should stop putting the RCMP in the position of uh, taking Native people off of their land. Okay, what about the First Nations that support the project, though? I mean, the company says they've got benefit-sharing agreements with all 20 First Nations along the pipeline corridor. What about them? Well, they have, in many cases, probably every right to give their consent, but not every nation has done so. 
Uh, and the title holders were clearly described in court cases like the Chocotin case and the Dalgamook case going back uh, you know, over a decade now. And knowing who those title holders are and appropriately consulting them and obtaining their free prior and informed consent is Canadian law. So we don't think that the senior level of government, the province and the, fe- uh, the federal government, are living up to uh, the really strong and, and you know, impressive commitments that they've made by kind of continuing to play down the middle. They know these issues of proper representation are not resolved. Uh, and they're basically using the fact that they can get some people to say yes to, well, to keep pushing through. Yeah, but it's not just some people, though, right? I mean, it's all 20 First Nations and the elected band councils along the pipeline route. And I'm, I'm just wondering what you think about the negative impact it would have on a lot of Indigenous people if, if you shut this pipeline down. Like I'm thinking about, for example, there's $620 million in construction contracts with the Indigenous businesses. What would you say to them? Well, I'm going to have to just back up here uh, for a minute and, and say that the way the law works is it doesn't mean that because it's good for some Indigenous people, all Indigenous people have to accept it on their territory. That's just a confusing, challenging, and very difficult problem because of the history of Canada. And it is the responsibility and the duty of the Crown to resolve that issue before they make these projects happen. Uh, and when the Crown is actually advocating for the project, it really puts it in a very tricky position for them to uphold the honor of the Crown and do that yeah. consultation. Yeah, I also but, have to back up and say yeah. that we're not just talking about jobs here. We're talking about one of the largest climate change-inducing impacts projects in the history of Canada right. and about the physical damage to the habitat where the fracking is happening to get this gas. So the pipeline is just one little part of it. And the people along the pipeline itself aren't yeah. even necessarily the ones facing the biggest risks. So yeah, but they're the but they're the ones question. but they're the ones who are trying to lift their communities out of poverty in a lot of cases. And and I'm taking a look at some of the projects that First Nations are supporting uh, with as a result of this pipeline. So so for example, the West Moberly First, First Nation and this First Nation, they're not they're no pushovers. The West Moberly they they fought the Site C Dam, for example. They support this pipeline. Uh, they're building a, a, a lodge there for hundreds of workers called the Sukunka Lodge that they're, they're already building. What would you say to them for the people who would lose their jobs and lose all their money in building that lodge if you shut it down? Well, I have to be very uh, clear that I'm not ever going to try and speak on behalf of, of any First Nation or no, no, or I'm, First I'm no, I'm asking government. you what no, I'm asking you what you would say to them. These are indigenous, I, these are indigenous I, I, people who are working on this project. Hundreds of them. I understand. I yeah. also know hundreds of them who have been fighting every one of these projects for decades, and they're faced with the decision of be run over by the projects and get nothing, or find a way to at least extract something from something from a project that they do not want to see. And I think that's a devil's choice. I think that's not really free prior informed consent to give away your title and your way of life for the future so you can get the money now yeah, since you're yeah, going to lose it anyway. But here's I, the I thing, though. The here, here, yeah, but here's the these thing, the though. questions like, that haven't been resolved. Yeah, but here's the thing, though. When you talk to these the 20 First Nations along this corridor, all of them support the project. They represent 13,000 indigenous people and a lot of them are working on this project. Like one third of the work on this pipeline has been done by indigenous workers. So you're talking about shutting down a pipeline and throwing all these people out of work, and they're trying to lift themselves and their families. 
out of poverty. So here's here's another example. There's a First Nation called the Nadley Wooten First Nation, very remote part of British Columbia in northern in northern BC. They're building uh, a camp there for workers for 700 workers. They're get this. They're building it on the site of a former residential school, and they say it symbolizes a turning point for that First Nation. What would you say to them if you're standing looking at them in the eye right now and saying you want to shut it down? I would say that if that is what they feel they need to do, that they are the title holders. That is their right to make that decision. But this pipeline... You, want to shut it, you just told me you want to shut it down. I think that the entire project needs the permission, free prior informed consent of every title holder whose land it crosses. And it does not have that. And as difficult and challenging as that is, that is the law in Canada. That is well, the duty what ab- of the Crown. What about the Federal Court of Appeal that just ruled you don't need unanimous consent on these projects? I think talking there's about be, the law? I think that if you look at Doug Mook and if you look at the Chilcotin, the title holders must be consulted and they must have free prior informed consent. And they have not received that from these hereditary chiefs in the Wet'suwet'en Territory. What, what this I, is the area I'm focused on. And there yeah. is a clear clear lack of understanding about whether the elected council or the hereditary chiefs have the appropriate authority in this case. And while that is unresolved, I do not believe they should be pushing forward. Uh, Well, I I would suggest to you that a clear majority of indigenous people impacted by this project support it and they want the jobs and they want the development. Have you heard of the construction monitoring and community liaison program? This is an indigenous an indigenous group that monitors the construction of the pipeline. They advise on environmental concerns and the proximity to cultural sites. You're going to look them in the face and tell them to shut it down too? What about all the work they're doing? I am in a position where I am telling every portion of the oil and gas industry and infrastructure industry in Canada that they need to start phasing out, and they needed to 20 years ago. Climate change is real, and it's in our face, and it's happening now, and it's getting worse. The destruction of territory is driving caribou to extinction and removing the possibility of those rights and title holders exercising their indigenous rights to the way they want to live. Some of them feel that. Many of them do. Many of them don't. But what I am ultimately saying is that this is not really and truly resolved yet, that we do not believe the Crown is doing an appropriate job of resolving that. And I think that we have a whole lot of our society that has been put in. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Into a corner where oil and gas is the place where we say this is the only way we're going to make money out of our country, and that has got to change now. All right, welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi Sarah now. Let's talk now about the tragic story of the doctor in China who blew the whistle on the coronavirus outbreak and then died of the disease himself, Dr. Li Liang and his death uh, sparking anger and outrage and also sadness uh, in China, especially, and also around the world. Have a listen to this report from CNN. 
Chinese state media first reported that Lee was one of several whistleblowers silenced by police. Calls for Lee and the others to be vindicated grew online. China's Supreme Court even weighed in, adding, quote, it might have been a fortunate thing if the public had listened to this rumor at the time. But for many, including Lee and his parents, it was too late. They all contracted the coronavirus. Lee's condition declined rapidly. But before his death Friday, he witnessed the support of thousands online who considered him a hero. Late Thursday night, Chinese state media first reported Lee's death. The responses online reflected a profound grief and a deep anger. The two topics trending on Chinese social media were Wuhan government owes Dr. Li Wenliang an apology and we want freedom of speech. Both had tens of thousands of views before being censored. Soon after, state media changed its reporting, citing Wuhan Central Hospital, which reported Lee was still alive but in critical condition. And a few hours later, in the middle of the night, hospital authorities officially announced Lee's death. He was 34. Okay, that to me is a tragic story. Here you have a guy who's blowing the whistle on this virus. He ends up dying of the virus himself. And, of course, Chinese officials there at first tried to clamp down on what he was trying to tell the public. Let's check in with Jeremy Nuttall now. He's the very fine reporter for the Toronto Star based in Vancouver, and he's been writing about this story. Thanks, Jeremy, for coming on. Hey, it's a pleasure. Okay, this is an incredible story to me. What's been the reaction to uh, this man and his and his death? Yeah, I've never seen anything like it. Um, there has been just this, uh, not just anger, but grief that's been pouring out of, uh, of China, uh, both online uh, and in China itself, for this guy's death. And it's, it's, I, I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that people didn't necessarily uh, uh, hear of the guy until about you know, a week ago, but his plight of being censored by the government, of being pushed around, of trying to do the right thing, um, has resonated with people. And that's very scary if you're the Chinese government. Yeah, what did he, what did he do? When did he find out or first first blow the whistle about the disease and what did Chinese officials do as a result? Yeah, the story, the story I've heard um, is that uh, essentially in a WeChat group with other doctors, um, he was talking about how these symptoms were happening and people were getting sick and he believed it was a, a, new, a new strain of a virus and they had to act. Right. And apparently um, there was somebody, somebody in the group or the government was watching the group because WeChat is uh, not secure from the Chinese government at all. Um, reported him to the police, and he was arrested for, quote, spreading rumors and detained and, and then released. And his, what he was trying to say wasn't taken seriously, and, uh, you know, consequently, the, the, the disease or the virus exploded the way it did. Okay, this is incredible, and I think one of the reasons that it's touched so many people is there's the famous photo of him circulating, uh, lying in his hospital bed with a, with a surgical with a mask on, and he looks like a kind of a young guy, right? He's not an he's he didn't look he's not an old guy. He's a young man. No, he's a young man. He's only thirty four, which is yeah. kind of frightening because we've been also told that this disease is only killing older people with compromised health. So for a 34-year-old to be taken down by it is, is quite alarming. And that photo particularly, I think, is part of the reason that there's been such an emotional reaction to him. Yeah, yeah. Um, for some reason, there's just something about his eyes, you know? I mean, it's, I don't know, he, he, he's almost uh, making a connection with whoever looks at that photo at the time. And I think that has something to do with it. I agree with you. I think it's very powerful. What has been the, you talked a little bit about the backlash and the reaction is this a threat in any way to the Chinese Communist Party and the government there? 
Yeah, the experts I've spoken to particularly have said it absolutely is a threat. Uh, one of the reasons being that uh, sort of in, in Chinese history, quite often a major calamity signals to, to people uh, that this government is, has to go now. Um, for instance, uh, one example that was given to me was the, the uh, Tongshan earthquake uh, in 1976, which killed 700,000 people. It was uh, around the same time, I believe the same weekend, but I could be wrong, that Mao Zedong died. And so that sort of reinforces that, that belief, is, is things like that happening. Um, and this particular outbreak is something that affects the entire country. Uh, people everywhere are being, you know, quarantined, or or the cities there are locked down, or there's just a general fear, and so that could be what what triggers uh, more open resentment toward the Chinese government, which from there could be a, a downward slope for them. Jeremy, you just got a minute left here. How is the Chinese government control trying to control this story now? I mean, are, are they trying to clamp down any media reporting on it? They have not only clamped down on the media; they have taken down stories about Dr. Lee that were put up yesterday, even just tributes and things like that. So their response to this has been the typical Communist Party response to try to erase it. And I don't know that it's going to work this time. Jeremy, good work on the story. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. That is Jeremy Nuttall. He's a very fine reporter for the Toronto Star based in Vancouver with uh, the story of Dr. Li Wenliang, the Chinese doctor who blew the whistle on coronavirus. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi Sarah. What a busy week it's been in BC politics, highlighted, of course, by the government's rollout of no-fault auto insurance. We've assembled our BC politics panel. McLean Kay is here. He's the editor-in-chief of the ORCA website. McLean, thanks for coming in. Thanks very much for having me on. Okay, we'll figure this (laughs) out. Shannon Waters is here, too. She's a reporter with BC Today. Shannon, thank you for coming in. Yeah, good to be here, Mike. Okay, guys, let's start with the uh, no-fault auto insurance, or as Shannon reminded me during the commercial break there, what does the government call it? They don't call it no-fault. Enhanced care. Here in BC, the government is calling it the enhanced care model, but the government's own white paper on making the change acknowledges that the systems that the BC system is based on call their system no fault. So Manitoba and Saskatchewan call it no fault insurance. BC looked at those systems to inform its own, but we're calling it enhanced care. Why do they not want to call it no fault? Is it getting, does no fault got kind of a bad, bad rap, the name? Maybe they want to avoid it or? I think it's mostly about the fact that to date, the government has said we're not going to a no fault model. Yeah. Yeah. They said they would not bring in no fault. So they bring in no fault and call it something else. What did you think, McLean, about the rollout of this uh, big announcement yesterday? Well, it all happened very quickly, obviously. We, we sat uh, getting briefed for three hours. Um, but uh, I think politically, it's actually a good move. Um, we'll see if it holds up you know, legally and if it does the things they say it will do. Um, but you know, they're trying to force the liberals into the position of, well, defending lawyers. We're on, we're on your side, and they're only for the blood-sucking lawyers. Right. And what did uh, I spoke to liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson on the show yesterday and Shannon and, and he basically said that he he's opposed to this, what the government's doing here. And he tweeted out that he stands with drivers um, and giving people more options. So what, tell me, talk to me a little bit about the politics of this thing. Is this kind of a risky is this a trap that Wilkinson's fallen into here? 
I think I do kind of agree with McLean that, yeah, the government wants to see the liberals try and back a group of people who are not very popular among sort of the, the general lawyers. public. That being said, ICBC is not that popular among the general yeah. public either. And there are a lot of people who have an experience with the system that is not a good one, whether it's high premiums or having been injured in a crash and having to sort of fight for benefits and get nickeled and dimed on reimbursement for care that they need. Yeah. So. The government is kind of saying you need to trust us and then you need to trust the system and everything will get better. Right. And I think there's a lot of people who are skeptical about that right now. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's something that Wilkinson himself seemed to seize on yesterday saying, do you trust ICBC? Do you really trust this government? And maybe that's kind of the strongest hand he can play. But if the government delivers on their promises here, and they actually cut people's auto insurance premiums by 20% next year. McLean, for your thoughts, I mean, isn't uh, Wilkinson maybe on the wrong side of it? Well, I mean, we'll see. Yeah. First of all, it's going to have to withstand a very vigorous legal challenge from the trial lawyers uh, and probably among others. And whether which, which they'll lose, which they might lose. Um, but the, the thing is, is going to be not just whether this lasts a year, but I think it's fair to be skeptical when the government says this is going to lower your premiums. It's going to increase your benefits with no downside whatsoever. It's an incredibly obvious no lose situation. But, yeah. you know, where was this three years ago? Right. And, and in fact, I guess the government in a lot of ways acknowledged that yesterday. And EB, I said, does it, if this, does this sound too good to be true? And it kind of does sound too good to be true, doesn't it, Shannon? I mean, can they deliver on this? Well, the government acknowledged that yesterday. I mean, yeah. I think at least two or three times we were told this sounds too good to be true. Yeah. Here's why it's not too good to be true. Right. Um, and I think the proof is going to end up being in the pudding. Like, yeah. In the shorter term, people's premiums are supposed to go down 20%. By the time we right. get to the next election, most people should have seen a significant reduction in their premiums. So that could work out very well in the NDP's favor. At the same time, when it comes to the overhaul of benefits, that's going to take longer for people to see whether they really are better than what's being offered right now. I remember when the NDP tried this a long time ago in the 1990s. You guys are too young to remember this, but I'm old enough to I covered it. And the NDP ended up backing down. They proposed to do no-fault auto insurance. There was a backlash, not only from the lawyers, which is expected, but in the 90s, also a big backlash from the disabled community. So I remember there were, there were protest rallies by people in wheelchairs and stuff saying, don't do this to us. People have been catastrophically injured in car accidents and furious at the idea of no-fault insurance. And the government caved. They just backed down right away. I think E.B. is a, a, a student of B.C. political history, and he knew that that was a pitfall for them last time. This time, it appears they've got the disabled groups on their side and saying they kind of like what they hear on this on this plan. Is that critical, do you think, for this thing going forward? Oh, absolutely critical yeah. in the short term. But I mean, not to echo Shannon, but the, the proof will be in the pudding. The first acid test won't come from getting um, people to validate uh, the press release. It's going to come from the first time someone who is catastrophically injured and doesn't like what they're being offered from ICBC and wants to sue. That yeah. first case will get a lot of attention. And that that's when I think we'll uh, we'll see if it's going to work or not. Right. I, the lawyers were saying to me yesterday that, oh, this is just going to be like workers comp. It's going to end up like a WCB work safe type system. And if you want to get people angry, talk to them if they feel like they've been treated fairly by work safe, if they've been injured at work, which is another sort of similar no fault system. I think that's going to be the challenge going forward here. If this thing does work or people end up hating ICBC even more. 
if I, it doesn't work. Part of me wonders if that's even possible. Yeah. I mean, I don't. Nobody likes a monopoly in the first place. Most people don't like, you know, insurers and having to deal with that situation. That being said, what the government has said and what EB had sort of said going back to um, the way this was received in the 90s and the way it didn't go forward, things have changed. Yeah. ICBC is in way worse shape. And there have been a lot more examples, I think, covered of people who have been catastrophically injured and have maxed out the benefits under the current system. And they're nowhere near adequate for the kind of support that right. people need when they are catastrophically injured in in a car crash. Right. I think the other part that the and and where the attorney general has insisted that this is not a no fault system yeah. is that bad drivers will still be held accountable. They will still see their premiums go up if they're causing lots of crashes. And for those who are found criminally responsible, um, we don't have the specifics of what those charges would be. But for people who are for found presumably be, like drunk driving or something like that. Yeah. Reckless driving. Right. Right. without due care and attention, possibly. Yeah. Those people, um, the individuals who are hurt by those people will have the option to sue them outside. Right, so that's system. why the government say it's not a total no fault. There, There is some you know, recourse to the courts in some, cir some circumstances. I think the government uh, it seems to be pretty happy with the way that this rolled out yesterday. I think they're pleased that the liberals are going against it because I think maybe they're thinking this is a good wedge issue for the NDP. Do you think next week, McLean, with... The legislature coming back into session, all the all the MLAs coming back to Victoria. The throne speech is on Tuesday. Does the government keep pushing the pushing the gas pedal down on this and, and really make this a big uh, big platform for them next week? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the the NDP are trying to sell themselves as the party of affordability, yeah. and rising ICBC premiums, no matter who you blame, were kind of the Achilles' heel, or one of them, I guess. And so, if they can at least claim to be doing something um, that is uh, reversing the trend of, of increased premiums for a lot of people, then yeah, of course they're going to pedal to the metal, as you say, within speed limits. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, guys, let's talk uh, just real quickly in the couple of minutes we got left on the. What so uh, the coastal gasoline pipeline? There is a uh, protest group on the front steps of the BC legislature right now. They've been there for what a couple of days, Shannon? Is that how long they've been there? I think they arrived yesterday. Yesterday, okay. Um, okay. That of course is when the RCMP enforcement uh, began this week. So there were a. To me, it looked like there were a smaller group there yesterday. There seemed to be more people on the steps today. We're also seeing some disruption in downtown Victoria uh, with people drumming and demonstrating right on Douglas Street. Um, so there are people who are reacting to the RCMP's enforcement of this injunction. Now, there's not a whole lot going on at the legislature today. Fridays right. tend to be quiet. We're not back in session until next week. But prorogation is scheduled for Tuesday. And that's when right. the lieutenant governor usually goes through the ceremonial gates that currently have a group of protesters in front of them. Yeah, like I'm starting to wonder now if this could be um, a showdown here next week, McLean, if these protesters are still there blocking the doors of the legislature when the lieutenant governor shows up with all the pomp and ceremony and a 21-gun salute. I mean, uh, do these guys, do these protesters there know that this is coming up on Tuesday? Are they planning to stay there? I guess we don't know. Well, I mean, I'm sure they know that's what's coming next week. They they can Google. But um, I mean, look, here's the thing. We, we've had throne speeches here disrupted by protests and the arrival of the lieutenant governor. In fact, it's difficult to recall a time when there weren't protests when the lieutenant governor has arrived. Will it be different if people are barricaded through the ceremonial gates? Yes, I suppose. Um, but we'll see if they maybe they can just go in a side door. 
Guys, uh, uh, thanks very much for that. A busy week. We're going to have another busy one next week. We'll have to get you back. Thanks very much for coming in. All right. Welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for Semi. Let's talk about the condo market right now. And if you are a condo owner or you're looking to potentially buy a condo, listen up because this is an important issue as it relates to insurance for condominium buildings. The price of insurance going through the roof. Some condo buildings are having difficulty getting insurance at all. This is a growing problem. Some people want the government to step in. Let's check in with Tony Giaventu now. He is the executive director of the Condo Homeowners Association of BC. Tony, it's nice to talk to you again. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. So when a a condo gets insurance, is it individual condo owners have to get insurance for their individual units, or does the strata buy insurance for the whole building? Well, it's required under BC legislation that a strata corporation has to obtain insurance for the full replacement value of all of the structure and the assets of, and fixtures of the building. Uh, and that, that's a pretty heavy burden on a strata corporation, especially when they go to their insurance company to discover, whoops, we can't renew our insurance policy. And we're, we've, we have a number of buildings this week that are in that position as of January 31st. Okay, this is something you've been ringing the alarm bell on this one for a little while now. When did this start to become a problem? Uh, we started seeing issues back in August of last year where we started seeing letters coming out from insurers warning strata corporations that we're going to be seeing substantial increases, that there is a, you know, there's a reduction in the number of insurers in the industry. And so there is going to be less competition. There's less capacity to assume all of the liability of these these policies and you know it just culminated all within you know november december january to to where we are now which is either substantial increases that are overwhelming communities um or the lack of insurance entirely which is even much more great because now this has resulted in the collapse of a number of sales this week that were set to close um for purchases okay that's serious stuff how much has the insurance rates gone up as we've seen increases not only in the rates but the deductibles, we've seen increases as much as 500%. Um, I know that's breathtaking, a gasp. Uh, and what that's converted into for um, some of these communities is their strategies on a monthly basis on average have increased almost three to $400 a month just to pay Whoa. for the insurance. Whoa. Yeah, it's, it's just devastating. You know, um, let's you know, it's a, it's a whole other discussion around housing affordability when this happens. Okay, the deductibles, that's a key part of this too. So the deductibles are going up. How does that work? So if, um, you know, if I have a flood in my unit and it damages five or ten units below me and there's a claim on the building insurance, then the original structure of the building and what was installed by the developers insured by the strata, and that includes all the original finishings like cabinets, original flooring, those types of things. Uh, when those um, are all covered under the policy, um, the strata corporation's policy kicks in. Those deductibles have conventionally been between ten and $25,000 per incident. Those deductibles in many buildings, now not just isolated buildings, but quite a number of buildings, have increased either to 100000 250 or $500,000 per event. So essentially it leaves these communities self-insured. Okay. Why is this happening? Uh, I think it's a, there's a a combination of problems in the industry. Uh, One is the value of properties 
and all of the finishings within the units is um, much higher um, construction-wise to reconstruct these buildings, and and that's a bit of a reality check. Um, Higher risks in our region because of the potential of earthquake losses, which affects the whole policy, not just your earthquake clause, but it affects the entire policy. Um, We've seen an increased number of claims. We have older buildings that are not renewing and maintaining their systems, so their roofing systems are failing or their plumbing systems are past replacement. Um, We see very large developments um, of five to 700 units um, that are probably worth a half a billion dollars or more. And you're actually asking, um, you know, an insurance company to insure that um, that amount in the event of a complete loss. It's, it's a substantial undertaking by yeah. the insurers when they start looking at that. And then, of course, the other thing that's happened is there's been a reduction in the number of insurance companies who are in the market, in the BC market for condo insurance. And that, of course, has reduced competition. But more importantly, it's placed a lot more burden on the fewer companies to carry the gross amount of all of these risks. And all of that together has really increased the pressure um, on the system. So, you know, when brokers are out there fighting for their clients to get insurance, it's, it's kind of a little bit of a pick and choose as to how you can get the best insurance for your best clients. And it's not always possible to get insurance plates for all of your clients. Speaking to Tony Giaventu from the Condo Homeowners Association of BC about skyrocketing insurance rates for condo buildings, does Estrada Corporation have any recourse here, Tony? Like, let's say you get slammed with one of these big rate hikes for insurance for a condo building. Can they appeal that or complain about it, or they just got to pay it? Well, they could negotiate it. That's one of the things that, uh, that, that is one of the issues I think they need to look at. I think Strata Council's often just hand over their insurance to their property manager and the property manager works with the broker to say, okay, what are we getting? And strata councils need to be more proactive in dealing with their insurance brokers directly. What are our options? Do we, can we increase liabilities? Can uh, uh, deductibles that we have, can we exclude some items that even at a $500,000 deductible would be, we basically be self-insured anyhow. Are there things that we could be excluding just so we can at least maintain basic insurance? You know, the, the, the bigger problem with the loss of insurance is it doesn't just mean that if we have a flood, our building's not insured. It also means that your general liability and your liability for your um, uh, strata council members and the property manager also is cancelled. So you don't have insurance coverage if somebody falls on your property and is injured. You don't have insurance coverage if there's a lawsuit against the strata corporation. So it's a much broader loss when this happens. My recommendation is for strata councils have a direct relationship with your broker talk to your property manager keep them in the loop talk to your lawyer also and and ask the questions what happens if we can't buy insurance because our legislation never contemplated this right okay so let's say there is a building that their insurance runs out they can't get insurance or they can't afford the insurance that's on sale uh what does that mean like if someone wants to buy a unit in that building and the building is not insured uh, does the sale fall apart? I mean, you got, you have to. You're required to have insurance, aren't you, to get a mortgage? You are required to have insurance for a mortgage, and yeah. you are required by law to have insurance under the Strata Property Act. So, right. if you don't have insurance, the um, the financial institutions are not going to an extend extend a mortgage on that. Uh, and and that's exactly what has occurred this week. We've had um, several sales that were to complete this week that have collapsed because there is no insurance in place. 
So even if you can get insurance with a number of exemptions, it's still worth it because it still helps to protect the integrity of the property with respect to transaction sales and mortgages. So you can't just throw your hands up in the air and say, well, we're all, we're all self-insured now. There's um, nothing we can do about it. We'll just have to put it. It doesn't work that way. You, do you want, as a corporation, you've got to buy insurance. Okay. Do you want the government to step in or, and do something? Well, this is a complicated dynamic. This isn't, you know, um, ICBC model um, works well for vehicles. Um, you know, it, certainly it has its ups and its downs. Um, but what's being insured vis-a-vis the number of risks, the liabilities, um, there, you know, there are manageable factors within that. If we convert um, a government type of a model for insurance for housing. Um, I'm not sure that any government has the capacity to take that on because of basically because of the overwhelming values of all of these properties for reconstruction. Wow. Um, government does have to step in, though. They do have to look at how we could limit some of the risks for um, uh, the insurance industry and for the strata corporations so that they're not, they're not narrowed into such a, um, a fine body of having to insure for everything at full replacement value. Um, government could also step in and look at changes to the legislation that might actually limit the types of liabilities people might have um, and the type of liabilities the corporations may have. That may help as well, but there, there isn't a quick fix here. It's a tough spot you're in there. Thank you, Tony, for coming on to talk about it. Yeah, good luck. And every anyone who is who is without insurance and they don't know what to do next for their strata corporation, if they haven't, uh, we have a team of advisors that are helping the public out to just kind of walk them through what their options are. So they can contact our, the CHOA offices and someone will be happy to help them out. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for Simi. What a huge announcement that was yesterday from the B.C. government on British Columbia going to a no-fault auto insurance system. This is something that David Eby, the Attorney General, and Premier John Horgan had ruled out pretty clearly in the past. But yesterday, we get the no-fault insurance announcement. That's a pretty big flip-flop. We're going to see a really big political fight over no-fault insurance in our province uh, in here coming up in the next few months. One of the things that the lawyers are angry about, of course, they make their money in defending clients who are injured in auto crashes. They say, look, this is not about the lawyers lying in their pockets with big money. This is about people who are injured in car crashes and whether they're going to get adequate uh, coverage and fairness uh, to treat their injuries, in some cases life-altering injuries, as the result of an auto accident. The government knows this. They know this is a vulnerable part of no-fault insurance if they want to make sure. They don't want to be seen as being uh, abandoning people who are severely injured in a car crash. Attorney General David Eby was on the CKNW Morning Show this morning with Simi Sarah, and he said that Doctors of BC, this is the main organization that represents doctors in the province, are on board with no-fault insurance. Have a listen. Does this not also put more onus on the medical community as well? Because they are now going to have to manage the care and kind of make those proposals and justify that care to ICBC. Yep, uh, it does. But people don't understand the amount of time that family doctors especially spend uh, assisting lawyers and uh, preparing for litigation and for court and how frustrated they get about the current system. That's why I think we have support from doctors of BC for the approach we're taking. We believe that this is going to significantly reduce the amount of time that doctors spend on administration. Uh, They're not going to be asked to be writing uh, these reports for court. Uh, What they will be asked to do is do what doctors signed up to do, which is help people get better with uh, $7.5 million in care benefits available to deploy. 
Okay, Attorney General David Eby this morning saying doctors of BC on board with the government's no-fault insurance system. You know the old saying, trust but verify. So let's check in now with uh, British Columbia's top doc, Dr. Kathleen Ross. She is the president of Doctors of BC. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for doing this. So do you guys indeed support this no-fault insurance system the government rolled out yesterday? So as you know, physicians uh, in BC, our our main priority is making sure that patients are able to get the care that they need in the most timely fashion. And these changes do mean better coverage for patients that are injured in, in a traffic accident. Uh, and does provide, uh, you know, more medical care and more enhanced supports for our patients during recovery. Okay, so you've taken a look at some of the coverage that the government has outlined yesterday, and you think it's you think it's adequate and fair. I think what's important uh, to remember is that family physicians are the frontline caregivers for patients who are injured in accidents, and we really have struggled at times to get timely care to patients uh, needing either specialized services, kinesiology, physiotherapy. And under these new guidelines, these uh, treatments should be actually easier to access. Okay, when I talk to the, the personal injury lawyers who are angry about this system, they say this is betraying people who are injured in car crashes. In, in some cases, people who suffer life-altering injuries, whether they're brain injuries or uh, spinal cord injuries. Uh, do you have any concerns that the system that's been outlined by the government here will adequately care for people who suffer these type of catastrophic injuries in a car crash? So as a physician, I, I don't think I'm the right person to comment on any legal changes that are occurring with this. Certainly yeah. looking at it from a treating physician's point of view, uh, it does look like it's going to improve my ability to prescribe treatments uh, for patients and, and patients' accessibility to those treatments. How would it be better than the system we got right now? I think because physicians are going to be in the in the driver's seat, so this would be more care able to be led by the patient's treating physician rather than uh, than waiting for approval by various sources to, to access care. Okay, we heard the Attorney General in that clip there saying this is actually going to be a, a good thing for physicians and because a lot of their time right now in these ICBC cases is taken up with these with these court matters and legal matters. Is that is that true? Do, like, do doctors, when they get involved with a patient who's been injured in a car crash, do they often get kind of sucked into these legal fights? So there's there's no question there's a, a great deal more administrative burden uh, involved when physicians are called to, to testify in a legal case or provide uh, written reports in a legal case. This uh, decrease in the, in that potential administrative burden will free up physicians' time to, to deal with more people. Okay, speaking of Dr. Kathleen Ross, she's the president of uh, Doctors of BC. The government has promised a consultation process here to unfold now here in the next few weeks. Is doc- are Doctors of BC in the loop on that? Do you guys want to be consulted and have input on the system? So Doctors of BC will absolutely continue to work with both the provincial government and the ICBC uh, to, to help lead this transition towards a more enhanced care model that will best meet the needs of our patients. All right. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Dr. Kathleen Ross, she is the president of Doctors of BC, uh, saying that they like what they see so far with this new no-fault auto insurance system rolled out by the government yesterday. I think that's crucial for the government as they go forward here. If they don't have the support of doctors, disability groups representing people injured in car crashes, I think it makes it a lot tougher to sell this 
to the public. I think this is going to be a crucial political issue here in the next few weeks. We've seen the Liberal Party come out against no-fault auto insurance. This is going to be a big issue as we go forward here in politics, especially next week when we see the B.C. legislature back in session. Don't forget that the throne speech is this Tuesday, and I bet you there'll be a lot of talk about auto insurance in the throne speech. Then you're going to see legislation in front of the House that the Liberals will be under some pressure to vote for or against, and we'll see what they do. So far, they're saying they're going against no-fault auto insurance. What will uh, these ICBC changes mean for benefits? Joy McPhail, the chair of the ICBC Board of Directors,